From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Starbucks in Colorado Springs is closing, and employees say it's because they voted for a union. It's almost like we are getting our faces rubbed into the idea of this is what happens when you try to unionize. We'll talk about the nationwide trend and why the Starbucks CEO firmly believes he's already on the side of workers. Then, how to address the increasing demand for mental health care in Colorado from access to equity. We need to treat mental health as seriously as we do physical health. That means integrating physical health and mental health together. I don't know a family that hasn't been affected by mental health. We're failing our kids, and we have to do better. U.S. Senate candidates Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day debate mental health care. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Leo Sanchez had hoped that today her union at a Starbucks store in Colorado Springs would be starting a negotiation with the company. Instead, she and her colleagues are cleaning out the store because Starbucks shut it down. It's almost like we are getting our faces rubbed into the idea of this is what happens when you try to unionize. I know a few of my coworkers just don't plan on coming. I know people that are coming don't want to be there, but it's just we aren't necessarily in a position where we can afford not to show up to work. Employees at seven other Colorado Starbucks have also voted to unionize. Sanchez is a shift supervisor at the store on Brookside and Nevada Avenue in southern Colorado Springs. She had hoped the union could negotiate specific things to make working there better. We wanted to have resources that run the store. We had our espresso bar shut down and they just weren't doing anything about it. And that upsets the customers. So we just wanted to get the proper resources to actually run the store. And then we wanted to have the hours because when you're on the floor, when you're working, you need a few more people. And the people that want to show up need the hours for their wages. She will stay on at a different Starbucks, but Sanchez is sad to say goodbye to the community she has with her current co-workers. It's so much better than the experience she had at another Starbucks before this. Moving down here, I was at a much more colorful store, much more understanding community, and just felt so much more supported and celebrated. She says she'll be hesitant to organize at the store where she goes next, given what's happened, even though the company says it's shutting down her current store for safety reasons. Sanchez says the workers actually laughed at that explanation. We have people walking around the street, but people walk around the street downtown. People are going to walk around the street at the next store I go to. The experience of this store in Colorado Springs highlights the divide that has emerged between employees who are voting to unionize across the country and Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who's equally as passionate about the need to shut down efforts to form unions. Reporter Greg Jaffe from The Washington Post spent parts of three months with Schultz and talking to Starbucks employees nationwide. Jaffe's here to help us understand more about the two sides in Starbucks union fights and what's at stake for the broader U.S. labor movement. Greg, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Unions have had a renaissance of sorts in recent years. You call the Starbucks effort one of the most successful of those. What makes you say that? You know, I think there are about 250 stores across the United States that they've organized so far. And that's, you know, that's almost unprecedented. Um, on the one hand, of course, 250 sounds like a huge number, and it and it is a big number, but it's also worth remembering that Starbucks has about 9,000 stores in the U.S., so it's a very small percentage still. In Colorado, workers have asked for better safety conditions, better communication with management, more consistent hours. What did you see in the stores that you visited across the country are employees all asking pretty much for the same thing? I think, yeah, the unionized employees and even the employees who haven't decided to unionize, I think largely have the same concerns. Um, you know, it's concerns about safety, particularly the way Starbucks bathrooms are used in more urban areas. They become, you know, havens in some cases for for people with drug problems and homeless people. And that's been a problem. And the other big complaint that you hear is hours are inconsistent. And so it's really hard to budget if you're getting 30 hours one week and you know, 20 hours the next week. On the other side of this labor movement is the company CEO, Howard Schultz. He made Starbucks the biggest coffee chain in the world. It started back in the 80s. And Schultz is this person who philosophically agrees with workers. He wants them to be valued. He was progressive in offering them health care, free online college. But he's just been so aggressive in fighting the employees' efforts to unionize. Where does that come from in him? You know, it's one of the questions I was trying to answer with this article, and it's a really tough one. Part of it is just emotional, I think, for him. He feels as though his workers are telling him, the unionizing workers, that they don't trust him, that what he's done is not good enough. And therefore, they need the sort of the power of a collective union, or in his view, an outside force to essentially to stand up to him. So he sees it as is primarily confrontational and sees it directed against him and his life's work. In some ways, I think that's the simplest explanation. You write that he mentions his upbringing, that he was poor, that his father wasn't treated well by his employers, and that he therefore cares about his employees. And yet this just seems like he's in such denial about the movement. Yeah, I think that's true that I think his father and that experience growing up has been sort of central to the story he tells about Starbucks, both publicly and to himself. You know, he's written three books about Starbucks and his dad, the way his dad was treated by the companies and then the way his dad in turn treated him, which was badly, is at the center of all three of those books. So he's really wrestling with that, you can tell. Um, I do agree it's a bit of a contradiction though. Yet he describes the unionization effort like it's this personal affront. There's this clip um, that you played on the Washington Post podcast. Let's listen to it. So when you love something so much, you're almost willing to do anything to defend it, to preserve it, to enhance it like you would for your, your family. And for so many people at Starbucks, this has become their family and how personal it is. And it is very personal, especially when you have an adversary that's threatening the very essence of what you believe to be true. He's describing employees there as adversaries. It sounds like he's pretty transparent about his aims. He wants to stop employees from unionizing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think he sees this union as an existential threat to the company and the company's culture and thinks that Starbucks can't be Starbucks if it's got an effective union inside of it. It's not an entirely rational point of view, but it's one that he feels deeply. Um, He talks about Starbucks almost as though it exists in some sort of spiritual space. It's a little bit the way you hear tech CEOs like at Facebook and Google and places like that talk about how they have this sort of grand mission. And I think Howard sees coffee and people meeting over coffee as almost like a spiritual thing. You know, people can come together over coffee and bond with each other in a way that is hard to achieve in our currently online worlds. So how exactly does he justify wanting to stop them from forming a union? You know, I think his main feeling is that the union will hurt Starbucks culture. So I think Howard's view is what makes Starbucks Starbucks, what makes Starbucks so magical is that the employees feel a connection and a love for the company, both for its mission and for its management, which is, you know, giving them great benefits, which is exceeding their expectations. And somehow if you introduce a union into that equation, it becomes an adversarial relationship in which the the workers are no longer, um, well, the workers are making demands of the company. And that somehow if that happens, it will have an impact on the way they treat customers, the way they see their jobs, and it will hurt Starbucks' special culture. It really calls into question everything he has tried to do in his mind to create the company. I think it does. It calls into question his view of himself, I think. Uh, You know, the Starbucks folks, as you talk to them, not just Howard, but some of the others who are designing some of the new programs for workers to try and win back their trust, um, they see a world in which there's little to no adversarial relationship between uh, the executives and management and the workers in the field, where the two, in their view, are communicating and listening to each other, and they're all completely on the same team. That's Howard's view. And to a certain extent, I remember talking to an executive, a former executive at Starbucks who who's a fan of Howard uh, and likes him. But he said, with Howard, you're either all in or you're not on the team. So Howard, you know, wants you to be 100% committed to his vision for the company. And if you're not, you know, he, he takes it personally and doesn't want you around. That executive was talking in terms of a one-on-one relationship, but I think you can blow it up and view it as the entire union effort. You followed him around the country. He talked to employees this year. You went to Schultz's store. It's close to his I think, $20 million plus house. And you talk to a union organizer who often serves him his coffee. What did you learn from going there and talking to her? You know, I was interested. I mean, one of the things that was just interesting to me is that Howard is traveling all over the country, and he, he deserves credit for this, um, talking to Starbucks workers and listening to their problems, listening to their problems in terms of paying their bills, in terms of the store. But where he doesn't talk to folks is the union folks. He's largely had almost no contact with them. And so here's a store where he goes for coffee in the morning and he, you know, is not 
asking those same questions of the baristas behind the counter who had decided to unionize at the store, you know, two tenths of a mile from his house. And so I found that that interesting um, and wanted to understand kind of how it looked from those baristas' perspective. Did that barista where Schultz goes ever articulate her concerns to him? No, she didn't. She had in her mind a sort of running speech that she wanted to give him, you know, and that she had often thought about, you know, sharing with him. She works the morning shift, which is tends to be when Howard comes in. It's a young woman named Elise Whistler. Um, And so she had a running dialogue of what she wanted to say to him, which was largely, we're trying to realize the values that you say are at the core of this company. You know, you say you value community. You say you value workers. By unionizing, we're not trying to destroy the company. We're trying to make the company realize its values. We're trying to make the company live up to its words. In Denver, the company challenged the unionization of one store. We also have this closure at the store in Colorado Springs. Nationally, how many closings like the one in Colorado Springs are happening at unionized stores? And how significant is that? I mean, Starbucks stores close and open all the time. Yeah, it's a relatively small number, a little bit over 20, if I'm remembering correct, or around 20. Um, The union will complain that about 40% of those stores are unionized or were in the process of, of unionizing. They had some union activity. And so, of course, you know, there are only 250 out of 9,000 stores that are unionized. So, you know, the unionized stores are only about 2 to 3%. So it does look like it's disproportionately affecting union stores. I think Starbucks will say the stores with problems are more likely to unionize because the workers are disaffected. So stores with safety problems where the police are being called on a regular basis, you're more likely to see union activity there because the workers are upset and so that they're not targeting um, unionizing stores or unionized stores. It's just a natural outgrowth of that fact. What are some of the other ways Starbucks is responding to the stores and the workers who are trying to organize? You know, there have been a lot of firings. I think the union will say about 120 plus workers have been fired, that they will say they've been fired largely for for union activity. You know, you dig into the cases um, and they're almost all complicated, to be fair. None of the workers are perfect. So usually they'll have done something wrong, you know, overslept and been late for their shift a couple of times. I think where you get into a disagreement is, Uh, The union will say in the past, those mistakes were forgivable, but at unionized stores, you know, you have to be perfect. And if you mess up, they're going to target you and fire you. Starbucks will, of course, say, well, we're not targeting or firing anyone. All of these folks have done things that merited their dismissal. And so it's complicated. This has also happened in Denver. The new union filed complaints about four employees in Denver who are fired after the votes. We talked to one person who was fired. She said it was really not a fireable offense. She dropped food on the counter, then handed it to a customer who then complained, and she alleged it was retaliation. But in general, can the company legally withhold raises and better hours from unionized stores or unionized employees? So this is a a subject of ongoing debate right now. Howard um, Schultz has has given some raises 
to non-union stores that he's denied to the unionizing stores. Um, and that's been a real point of contention. It certainly upsets the the baristas at the at the store near his house. I talked to Elise Whistler there, the the barista, uh, you know, who organized that store, and she's making seventeen dollars and eighty six cents an hour. He lives in a twenty one million dollar mansion, and you know, of course, that's going to upset her that she's been being denied a raise simply for for unionizing. I think right now the NLRB has found in an initial complaint that Starbucks can't do that. It can't give raises to non-union workers and deny them to unionizing workers, especially if the union in this case has said, you know, we're not going to bargain. We'll waive the right to bargain over these raises. Now, Starbucks will say, you know, that's not right. They'll point to, say, a, a Ford plant. You know, maybe there's a Ford plant in Michigan that's unionized and there's one in South Carolina that's not unionized, Ford could give raises to the non-union plant in South Carolina, and the plant in Michigan would have to go through the collective bargaining process to get raises. The difference here is that this union doesn't have a contract yet. It's a new union. Starbucks hasn't agreed to any contracts. The collective bargaining process is moving incredibly slow. You know, it could be a year, it could be two years before these guys get a contract. They may never get a contract. And so it's not entirely apples uh, and apples that we're comparing here. Uh, and it, it's going to be a matter that's going to go to the courts and the courts are going to have to decide. So uh, in Colorado, the stores with union votes are spread out around the state. Um, they stretch from Colorado Springs to Greeley. And I wonder if that strategy where they're far apart has actually affected their ability to really turn their movement into a contract. Yeah, I think one of the problems that the union has right now is that it doesn't have a lot of leverage. You know, you've got, I think we're up to 250 stores, but they're spread all across the U.S. There are a couple of cities where the union has, you know, a decent concentration of stores. One is Buffalo, New York, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but in no place do they have a majority of stores. And so it's hard for them to exercise leverage that way. There's nothing they can do to hurt Starbucks right now. They have uh, a couple of pickets, you know, or strikes that usually last two or three days. And those rolling strikes have happened across the country. And they're irritating to Starbucks, but they're not going to hurt the bottom line at all. And so I think what you need, which the union has struggled to get, is a concentration of stores in a single market where you can essentially, you know, shut down Starbucks in that market. And that would impose some pain on Starbucks, I think. What do you see for the future of this movement uh, for Starbucks and the workers? That's a really good question. And it's one that I had going into this is essentially the tell me how this ends question. Uh, and I don't know right now, you know, 250 stores have unionized. Those aren't going away anytime soon. So I think Starbucks is stuck with that, whether it likes it or not. Uh, at the same time, I don't see a good pathway to the union getting a contract anytime soon, unless the you know the Biden administration or the National Labor Relations Board really steps in and you know punishes Starbucks in some way or forces Starbucks to the negotiating table or to the bargaining table in a way that Starbucks doesn't seem to have been willing to go thus far. Um, and I think it's a good question for the Starbucks baristas, but it's also an important question for the country because you know I think labor. Unions represent about 6% of private sector workers, which is the smallest it's been, you know, in decades. 
And so if we think that unions are a solution to some of the problems we face in the country, such as inequality, you know, concentration of power and wealth among corporations and corporate leaders, um, I think Starbucks is a real test case as to whether unions can be a, a solution to that problem. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you. Greg Jaffe is a reporter for The Washington Post. He shared insights about the union effort at some Starbucks stores and the larger issue of the U.S. labor movement. When we come back, the Democratic and Republican Senate candidates answer questions about the growing demand for mental health care in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature, but Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. There's increasing concern about mental health care in Colorado, and it was at the heart of a U.S. Senate debate between Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett and Republican Joe O'Day. CPR health reporter John Daly was on the panel. Hey, John. Good morning, Andrea. Can you give us some context about mental health care in Colorado right now? Yeah, you bet. You know, I think the most important thing to understand is that there's a large and growing number of people in Colorado, kids and adults, who need mental health care services and treatment. But just like in other parts of health care, it's both a demand and supply problem. There's a big demand for these services, but the supply of qualified, trained mental health providers just lags behind throughout the system. And of course, the pandemic just exacerbated existing challenges. And how about some numbers to help tell that story? Well, here's a familiar one, the suicide rate, right? Colorado's age-adjusted suicide rate is high, 22 per 100,000. That's quite a bit higher <coughs> Pardon me, than the national average. That's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, for the decade of 2009 through 2019. And for one recent year, nearly one in 10 Colorado adults reported a major depressive event or uh, sorry, depressive episode. And for adolescents, it was even higher, more like one in seven. Now, we've heard folks from Children's Hospital Colorado raise the alarms about this. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, indeed. They were hosts of this uh, debate. Top administrators described it as a psychiatric crisis. One issue is pediatric residential treatment beds. The state has about 300 of them, but a decade ago, it had about 2,000 more. Now, the number of young people seeking emergency psychiatric care has ballooned. And this year, psychiatric ER visits at the hospital were up 88%. So that's Mm. a lot. But without enough residential beds, they said kids end up waiting in a hospital for inpatient treatment, and that can be for weeks or even months. And then, of course, there's the insurance question. Yeah, exactly. Do you have insurance? Does it cover mental health care? Can you get in to see a provider? Just a lot of challenges there. Before we listen to the debate, what stood out for you? You know, as you'll hear, both candidates spoke about how mental health struggles touch them personally through family, friends, and people that they know. And 
you know, many, if not most Coloradans can relate to that. I thought that was quite compelling. And this debate may be the first of its kind. Yeah, that's right. So we're spotlighting this. I was told this is the first major debate about mental health in Colorado among U.S. Senate candidates. And given the gravity of this issue, you know, hopefully it won't be the last. Thanks so much, John. You bet. The healthcare debate was hosted in part by Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. The media partners were CPR News, CBS News Colorado, The Colorado Sun, and Mindsight News. CBS's political specialist, Sean Boyd, kicked things off. Senator Bennett, we're going to start with you. If you're reelected, what does the landscape for mental health in Colorado look like in 2028, the end of this term that you are running for? We're facing an epidemic of mental health in Colorado and across this country as a result of you know, an economy that for 50 years has worked incredibly well for the top 10% of Americans, but almost for nobody else. The, the opioid epidemic uh, on top of that, COVID on top of that, uh, the effect, as I say this is a parent of three daughters, the effect of social media uh, on top of that, that our Surgeon General has called a science experiment that we're running on our children. These things have combined to create, you know, a profound epidemic that we have to address. That's why I've been working with John Cornyn, a friend of mine from Texas who's on the Finance Committee with me. We've released a white paper that some of you have seen that is a blueprint for what mental health ought to look like in this country going forward. And what, to answer your question very specifically at the end, what we need is parity. We need to treat mental health as seriously as we do physical health. That means integrating physical health and mental health together. It means making sure we go to where people are, like their schools, like their workplaces, to make sure that um, we're really integrating mental health into people's lives. And that, that's the work that we're trying to do together in a bipartisan way on the Finance Committee. I will say I'm really grateful that we passed the American Rescue Plan, because Colorado is now going to have $600 million to spend in rural areas and, and across the state, making sure that we're uh, attracting and retaining and training the mental health folks that we desperately need. And, and then we passed $12 billion in the bipartisan gun bill to address mental health. That is, I think, the largest, if not one of the largest, I think it is the largest expenditure on mental health ever in the history of our country to support uh, community health uh, and behavioral health uh, centers. So we're off to a decent start, but there's a lot more for us to do. Okay. Thank you. Mr. O'Day, please share your vision for mental health in Colorado. Uh, the issue of mental health is deeply personal to me. Uh, at 14 years old, our daughter lost uh, a very close friend to suicide. Our niece, uh, just four years ago, uh, lost a fiance to suicide on Christmas Day. And I don't know a family that hasn't been affected by mental health. Uh, my heart breaks for the young people of the country who are going through their struggles. We're failing our kids, and we have to do better. What's happening in America is not working. Partisanship is poisoning our country. My opponent votes with Joe Biden 98% of the time. It's not working. Inflation, 40-year high. It's not working. Crimes at an all-time high, not working. Homelessness in Colorado is rampant. It's not working. And this, we add this list, mental health, especially for our kids, it's not working. During the pandemic, politicians isolated our kids for far too long. Many leaders spoke out, parents begged. Senator Bennett, he voted with the union party line to leave kids out of school 
And last year, Children's Hospital declared a youth mental health state of emergency. Teen suicide in Colorado has increased 58% in three years, making the number one cause in adolescent deaths. It's a staggering number. And since Children's Hospital declared the emergency, there's been a 23% increase in mental health visits to the ER. That's a 103% increase above the first quarter of 2019, which was before the pandemic. What do things look like 2028? Well, if we put a massive, massive, massive focus on these issues and we reprioritize our values and we can turn the ship around, we lead. We do what's right by our kids. This debate is long past due, but it's about priorities. Thank you both. Our first question is about access to care or the lack of access to care. Federal law requires health insurers to cover mental health services the same as physical health services, but that often doesn't happen. The lack of insurance parity is one of the main barriers to accessing mental health and substance use treatment. Because mental health providers are not reimbursed adequately by insurance carriers, many don't accept public or private insurance, and this can lead to substantial out-of-pocket costs and delays in accessing care. If elected, how would you ensure the intent of the bipartisan parity law is realized and mental health providers receive sufficient payment for their services? Senator Bennett, you have one minute. We need to, we need to, we obviously need to make sure it's implemented properly and implemented well. And as I said, that is the goal. It has to be the goal. Parity has to be the goal and integration of mental health and Physical health has to be the goal. Um, I wasn't going to do this, but since Joe read his very political answer to your to your question, uh, I just want to point out that he opposes the bipartisan gun bill that Mitch McConnell voted for. Some of the best bipartisan work I've seen since I've been in the Senate that resulted in our passing this historic amount of money, $12 billion for mental health. He said he would have voted against that bill. He said he would have voted against the American Rescue Plan, which is going to result in Colorado having $600 million to address this crisis. So, you know, words matter, but and intentions matter, but votes matter a lot too. And I'm very pleased that Colorado is going to be able to begin addressing this crisis because of the votes that I've taken and the leadership that I've shown in the Senate. Mr. O'Day, you have one minute. The American Rescue Plan, a billion dollars to prisoners to pay their unemployment, six and a half million dollars to a golf course down in Colorado Springs, put in an irrigation system. I think there's a lot of issues with that bill. There's barriers though to what we're doing for mental health. First of them, one is a workforce problem. We've got to get training to counselors, therapists. We need to look at training. And when we talk about training, it needs to be a partnership with business. It needs to be a partnership with colleges. It needs to be a partnership with four-year schools, community. Uh, we need to treat it as an intern program so that we can have businesses help us get more people into this industry. There's a shortage across the nation in every industry. This is no different, but we need to take a business-type approach. We don't need government in the way. What we need is resources and make sure that we get across the finish line. Senator Bennett, would you This isn't government in the way. This is government resources being used by the public sector and the private sector, among other things, to pay for the kind of internships that Joe is talking about, to give people the chance 
to have training in settings like Children's Hospital and health clinics all over the state of Colorado so that we can deal with the, the workforce shortage. He's quite right that we, that we have and that we need to address. But that's exactly what these pieces of legislation do. Mr. O'Day, would you this, like a 30-second follow-up? The, the problem with this legislation is it addresses, it helps to address Medicare. Those people are getting access. People with money, they can go in and they can afford to buy uh, whatever services they need. When you start looking at the middle class, working Americans, we get left behind. When we're not allowing our insurances to buy what we need, there's a bureaucracy in the way. It's not addressing it for working Americans. The top and the bottom are getting taken care of. Working Americans are getting left behind. Thank you. Our, our next question is from Jennifer Brown, who covers mental health issues for the Colorado Sun. Substance abuse is a serious issue among adults and youth in Colorado. Both groups have reported that they are consuming more substances and are concerned about the amount that they're consuming. Yet, people seeking voluntary treatment are waiting on average 30 days before they can access substance abuse treatment services. What is your plan to ensure that Colorado has adequate substance use prevention, treatment, and recovery programs and infrastructure so that this state can meet the rising demand for these services? Well, the first thing we need to do is address the supply side. Right now, we have a border that is leaking fentanyl at record levels. Colorado's number two in fentanyl overdoses. Colorado's number two in drug overdoses. And the reason is because we haven't attacked the supply side. I spent a day with uh, Chief Pazin, and he and Sheriff Schrader um, talked about killing the supply side. They need some help. They're doing what they can here. Uh, all of their cars have Narcon in them. This is situation is being caused by a border that hasn't been secured. We've got to start there. Second thing is this high-potency marijuana that's been approved. We've got to do more to get these marijuanas in, uh, down to where they're you know, not killing our kids. And then the last thing, I hope Senator Bennett will join me in opposing uh, this legalization of mushrooms that's on our ballot this year. We don't need more drugs in our society. Senator Bennett. I would say, uh, first of all, I agree uh, wholeheartedly that we need to address our border situation. I was part of the Gang of Eight in 2013 that wrote the bipartisan immigration bill that got 68 votes in the Senate. John McCain led the Republicans. And in that bill, we had $40 billion of border security. And it was not, it was not to build a medieval wall. It was 21st century border security that would allow us to see every inch of the border. I hope very much we can get back to that. When I hear Joe talk about this issue, often he focuses only on that and not on the, actually the question that you asked, which is how do we get people access? I think that we need our judicial system and our, and our prison system to focus much more on recovery than, than they are today. You know, people can't get treatment. And it doesn't make any sense to lock somebody up and not provide any treatment while they're locked up away from society. We could, I think, have a profound influence on, on the future of our country if we had more drug courts that were able to put people on a path to recovery instead of just incarcerating people with no treatment at all. And, and that's, that's going to require us to Thank think you. very differently about, about our judicial system. Thank you. Mr. O'Day, would you like a follow-up? Well, We've got lots of laws on the books, and, and, and we're not enforcing them. I mean, that's part of the problem. We need to put drug dealers away. Um, right now, we've got woke DAs here in Colorado. 
that are turning people out on cashless bond. They can possess as much as one gram of fentanyl. It came down from four grams, but it's still too much. It's killing our kids. It's a deeply personal issue for me. My wife and I lost a very dear friend, a 25-year-old daughter that overdosed here a year and a half ago. It's killing our kids. We need to put these people away. We need stiffer penalties for drug dealers. Thank you. Senator Bennett, would you like a follow-up? Yeah, I would just say that I think that there isn't a family in Colorado, including mine, that hasn't been touched by, by this crisis. You know, we have to do more as a nation to, uh, to make China understand that they're going to face consequences if they continue to send precursor uh, chemicals to Mexico to make these drugs. Part of the problem with these drugs is they're so cheap and they're synthetic, and you don't need a cartel you know, to transport them. They're made in factories in northwest Mexico. And we need to demand a lot more out of Mexico, too, in terms of dealing with the gangs that are producing this poison that, it, that is killing our kids. Thank you. Our next question comes from Dr. Jessica Hawks, clinical director of the Pediatric Mental Health Institute at Children's Hospital Colorado. The New York Times recently reported that hundreds of suicidal children sleep in emergency rooms in this country every night. Over the last several years in Colorado, thousands of residential treatment beds for youth with mental health needs have closed, leading many kids to board for weeks on end in emergency departments, stay for months or even over a year in hospital inpatient beds, or leave Colorado and their friends and families to get treatment in other states. What would you do to ensure adequate access to appropriate residential, home, and community-based options, as well as preventative services for young people with complex mental health needs? Senator Bennett, we'll start with you. Thanks. We have a chronic under shortage, uh, shortage all over the state, um, especially in rural areas, for those sorts of services. And that's what, you know, we're going to have to fund. We're just going to have to fund it, and, and, and we're going to have to find ways of paying for it. The, the, um, the uh, Finance Committee on which I'm served is trying to figure out how to create some bipartisan bills to address this kind of thing, but other issues as well. Joe mentioned that seniors are taken care of and the poorest people are taken care of, but working people aren't. That's just not true. Everybody in this society is facing a shortage. Our children are facing a profound shortage. Seniors, Medicare, as you pointed out, doesn't reimburse the kind of stuff that you're talking about. And we need to change that. If we're, going to, if we're actually going to have parity, Medicare is going to have to reimburse, reimburse those sorts of things. And we're going to have to build more of those beds. I, w I want to say also that we have to reduce childhood poverty in this country as well. That is creating enormous stress among our kids and among our families. Thank and that's you. something I've, I've fought for for a long time. Thank you. Mr. O'Day? Uh, I, I think we've got to start with our school systems. Uh, right now, we don't have choice for school for all school systems. Uh, you basically, if you're uh, um, in an underperforming area, your kids end up in that school system. If you look at the um, scores, the test scores, they're down, especially in, in communities of color, they're down 24, 27% are reading at, at, at age. We need to change that. We need to make sure that every parent can do what my parents did, which was put me in a school system where I could succeed. They made a choice. It monumentally changed my life. We need to start there. Kids have to have a future, and that future starts with an education. The closest thing to magic in the United States is school choice. Put them somewhere where they can succeed. 
Uh, we can get them mental health at those institutions. We need to be preventative and not reactive. Uh, $5 trillion, and we haven't uh, addressed this. $5 trillion in the last two years, and we haven't addressed this. It's, it's got to change. Senator Bennett, did you have a follow-up? Well, we are attempting to address it now with the $12 billion in that bill and with the $600 million that Colorado is going to be able to spend. And, you know, that, those are my priorities. Joe is for cutting, you know, taxes for the richest people, supports Donald Trump's tax cut for the wealthiest folks in America, blew a $2 trillion hole in our budget deficit. I think that's just misplaced priorities. You know, we got to decide then we're going to invest in the American people again, and it's been, that's long overdue, and that's what we need to do. Mr. O'Day, any follow-up? Do, do, you, do you support more funding for residential treatment beds? I do, but I think we've, we've spent $5 trillion in the last two years, and haven't, we've, we've got $12 billion out of $5 trillion. My God, why aren't our priorities on mental health? Why aren't are they on, focused on education for our kids? Why aren't they focused on those things that are important to working Americans instead of paying criminals uh, unemployment to be in jail? Uh, the, the priorities have got to change, and that's the reason I'm running. Thank you. Our, our next question is from John Daly, who covers health-related stories for the Colorado Public Radio. John. Thanks, John. Well, no racial or ethnic group in Colorado is immune to suicide. They are impacted to different degrees. For example, Colorado's young people from communities of color are more likely to attempt suicide. Colorado youth uh, who are American Indian, uh, Alaska Native, are nearly twice as likely to attempt suicide compared to white youth. What role does equity play in your vision for getting everyone mental health services and ensuring that they're appropriate to the needs of different communities. Senator Bennett, can you please go first? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. We're, our state is tragically is leading the, the, the country in terms of teen suicides, and the growth has been extraordinary over the last few years. I think that we've got a couple, and equity should play an important role in this. I, th I think that's one of the reasons why I've been so focused on the child tax credit, which cuts childhood poverty across the country and relieves people of the kind of stress that, uh, that, that, that is not helpful. But there are other things we can do. I picked up the work that Corey Gardner was doing on the, on the 988 suicide line and, and with John Cornyn was able to fund that in the bill that Joe didn't support to make sure that that suicide line is available. I think that we've got to change the way our law enforcement agencies are interacting with uh, communities in, in the sense that we're, the way we're doing it in Denver and in, 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 on the West Slope and Grand Junction, uh, sending mental health folks uh, sometimes instead of police officers when a 911 call thank comes you. in. I'll use my other time to thank finish you. that thought, but thank you. Mr. O'Day. Yeah, the STAR program is an excellent start. Uh, I, I'm familiar with that program. I think it's a great start. We need to fund it, though, uh, and we need to make sure we, d we understand that that doesn't replace crime prevention. That's, that's a tool. It's not a replacement. Um, it, we've, we've got major problems here in Colorado and across the United States, and they're all related. It's homelessness. It's drug addiction. It's suicide. All of those things go hand in hand. And I am with Mr. Uh, Senator Bennett that we do need to do more for the entire state, but we need to refocus some of the allocations that we've made over the past two years 
To me, we've got money that hasn't been spent within some of the school systems now that was COVID money. We haven't used it. We should be using that to help our kids, help them mentally. Those are the type of items that I'd like to see us get done. Senator Bennett, did you have a follow-up? No. Oh, but I'll finish my thought on this, which is, thank, which is that if you look at in Summit County and in Grand Junction and in Denver where they have a version of the STAR program that Joe just endorsed, which is great, um, when a call goes into 911, they make a decision. Are we going to send mental health workers? Are we going to send a cop, a cop with mental health workers? Or are we just going to send police officers? And in about 9,000 instances where 911 has dispatched mental health people, They've never had the need to send backup, which means the police officers can focus on violent crime and hopefully people can get the help that they need and, and are less likely to be at risk for suicide or other kinds of, or other kinds of trauma. Mr. Day, follow-up? Uh, no. Thank you. We have one more question from our panel. This one from Rob Waters with Mindset News, a digital journalism organization dedicated to reporting on mental health in America. Rob. Thank you, Sean. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the workforce crisis here. Um, you know, we, we know that there are not enough mental health providers, not even close, uh, to meet needs that folks have in this country and in Colorado. How would you use federal lovers to expand and develop our mental health workforce, including non-traditional workers like peer support specialists and community health workers? The question goes to Ms. Roday. I, I think we, we do have a problem. It's, it's nationwide. It's in almost every industry. Uh, and I think it starts with uh, junior high, high school education. Uh, we continue to tell kids that they need to go through a four-year program, uh, and that's important. It is important for some kids. Some kids are like me, though. They didn't do so well in, high, in college. And so what, we, what I did is I went through a, an apprenticeship program, and it helped me find my way. We need to have that same type of apprenticeship program available to healthcare workers, available to counselors, to therapists. Put them in a situation where businesses can sponsor them so they're getting paid while they're uh, learning. Uh, make sure that the four-year and the two-year colleges, that those two curriculums line up so that when they transfer from one school to the next, they're not losing credits. Uh, we start at that level and we begin to grow a workforce and that's how it starts and that's how we get them into our industry. Senator Bennett? I actually agree very much with what Joe said. First of all, I don't think we should, a kid should graduate from high school in this country without the skills to earn a living wage, not just the skills to earn a minimum wage. And that could be very important for our mental health workforce and our, and our workforce generally. I think that we as a state have to figure out ways of making the job more attractive in underserved areas, whether that's rural or urban. We're not paying people enough in these jobs, and we're not embedding their training enough and, get, and showing them a path forward. I think that's something that we could do. And then I'm going to raise something that may sound unrelated to you, but is definitely fundamental uh, when, when I'm traveling the state all over the state. And that's the lack of affordable housing that we have in Colorado. We have no workforce housing. And there are communities all over this state where mental, there are no mental health workers because there is no housing. And that's part of the crisis that we're facing. And, and I think one of the things that we, that we can fix, but I'll save that for another debate.
That was Democratic U.S. Senate candidate incumbent Michael Bennett and Republican candidate Joe O'Day. Hear the entire mental health care debate at CPR.org. It was hosted in part by Children's Hospital Colorado, Inseparable, and the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. The media partners were CPR News, CBS News Colorado, The Colorado Sun, and Mindsight News. Ballots were mailed last week, but you can vote anytime between now and Election Day. That's November 8th. Check out our voter guide at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.